Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. We are really privileged to have Jonathan Lunin on the podcast again. So we're hoping to, in this interview, talk about both uh, a little bit more of a deep cut into his uh experience as a scientist and hopefully talk a little bit about his experience with other scientists of faith and then we will hope to transition in a second episode to talking a little bit more about a specialty of planetary science uh, which uh, we could love to cover in a little bit more depth and see if we can a little bit of the interface between planetary science and uh, giving a, a perspective of faith on that perspective of faith and creation um, I am a little bit under the weather, so I'm going to be depending on Bill, especially in this early part, to, uh, <laughs> to, to keep this, get this and keep this going. Uh, well, let me join my voice in thanking Dr. Lunin for his participation again. Uh, and uh, Dr. Lunin, when we talked in the podcast episode that was posted in August, we discussed, uh, yes, both the planetary science involvement, and an important aspect of your life, the faith journey, uh, how life uh, took you from your roots in an observant Jewish family uh, to becoming Catholic. In was it 2007 that uh, you joined the church? Yes, I made the decision in 2006, uh-huh. and uh, I started the RCIA process in the fall of 2006 and was baptized and confirmed on Holy Saturday in 2007. Beautiful. That's wonderful. And yeah. Yes. And uh, you had said at that time that uh, your journey was certainly not uh, taken uh, alone uh, as an individual, but very much uh, in community, both in the uh, uh, religious sense, but also among uh, the, uh, the scientific community. Um, and you had found uh, in in conversation with other scientists, uh, a certain valuable affirmation that uh, your combination of religion and science uh, uh, they were both harmonious and uh, both a fruitful part of your your background, and you gained encouragement from people that you met and dealt with uh, because that's so important in so many people's journey. Uh, we were wondering if you'd talk uh, about maybe one or two of the folks who played a, an important role for that journey. Sure. Um, well, certainly from the personal side, when I made the decision to begin the RCIA process, I actually called a personal friend uh, who also was our son's pediatrician, Bill Madden. And uh, he was, of course, not only very encouraging, but um, immediately began sending me books to read, which was great. And uh, he was a, a huge support. Um, my wife, although she's not a Catholic, uh, was very supportive as well. On the science side, um, what really uh, made an impression on me was the way that the astronomers of the Vatican Observatory lived their lives. Um, these are all Jesuit uh, brothers or priests, and some of them I had known, one of them I had known <clears throat> even before he made a decision to become a Jesuit back in 19, 
I knew him since 1981. It was not till the mid-80s that he decided to do that. But I, I knew him in, uh, I guess it was 1982 as I first met him. That was Guy Consolmagno. And some of the others I had met at, uh, when I joined the University of Arizona, um, principally in 1988. So really it goes way back. And um, I think um, given where I was at the time, um, it wasn't so much that I was impressed by their uh, harmonious melding of science and faith. It was almost in some ways a curiosity uh, to me. And I have to say that when I first realized that Guy was becoming a Jesuit was when he showed up at a scientific conference uh, with a name badge that said Guy Consolmagno, comma, SJ. And I said, uh-huh. what's that? Um, <laughs> but it was later in my life as I began to learn <clears throat> more about the Catholic faith that I also began to realize that this was um, something that was very special uh, to the, the, the Jesuit astronomers there. Uh, the way that they um, really seamlessly uh, were able to hold their science and their faith uh, as um, uh, individuals who, um, you know, for which this was not an internal battle, at least not one that you could see from the outside, but seemed to be very natural that, you know, these were things that fitted together very, very well. And that was impressive to me. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. so that was uh, that was an early affirmation. And as you were going through the RCIA process and then uh, preparing for actual uh, baptism and entry, uh, did it become uh, a matter of conversation with others in the scientific community? And did you find some affirmation there, too? I think not so much during that period. You know, it was a funny thing. The, I did the RCIA process at the Campus Newman Center, which was literally just a block away from uh, the, the space science complex on campus where we had, um, we had astronomy on one side. We had my building, the Lunar Planetary Lab, um, to the uh, west of that. And then um, sort of on the north side, completing a, a little square there was the headquarters of the National Optical Astronomy Observatories. And then just on the other side of that, to the north of that, was the Newman Center, which was run by the Dominicans. So I I didn't have a lot of um, contact with scientists who were Catholic at that time. But after uh, my baptism and when I began going to Mass, I actually began to notice that there were astronomers who I had known who were at the Mass as well. And I Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that you know he or she was Catholic, and um, and over time that um, uh, network, I guess I would say, of colleagues who also were Catholic uh, grew. It grew over time. That's great. And uh, the so there were not only the, the the pleasant surprises that these people shared this with you, but did you wind up uh, having discussions with them that shed light on and reinforced the idea that uh, one could uh, see this harmonious uh, compatibility between faith and science? I think in the the early years um, after my baptism, most of that kind of discussion came through a very nice series that was organized by 
Father Bill Steger, who was uh, one of the <clears throat> Vatican astronomers and a Jesuit priest. He died uh, maybe five years ago now. And he organized uh, something called the St. Albert the Great Forum of Science and Faith huh. about once a month, and there would be a speaker on these topics. And so that was really an opportunity to, to have those kinds of discussions. Um, my friends over in the, uh, the Vatican Observatory, of course, they had, I have to give you a little geography, their main headquarters, as we all know, is in um, uh, southeast of Rome, uh, used to be in Castel Gandolfo, now technically it's in Albano on the other side of the Papal Gardens. That's their main headquarters, mm -hmm. but they also have a house and also offices in Tucson. The offices are in the astronomy building at the University of Arizona, and that's because they have a telescope uh, facility on one of the mountains east of Tucson. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, they were there, but, you know, all honesty, they, with the exception of, of Bill uh, Steger himself and, and Father George Coyne, there wasn't a lot of participation from them in that activity. Um, we had also had a um, Templeton-funded uh, project that was going on between religious studies and astronomy at the U of A. That was very stimulating. But it wasn't, I think, until um, I moved to uh, Ithaca, to Cornell, in 2011, that a lot of these um, discussions really, um, I think, happened. I mean, even though I spent quite a bit of time with the Jesuit astronomers uh, in 2009 when I did a two-year leave of absence in Rome, and actually, until my wife and son came out, they provided me with an apartment we didn't get into many deep discussions. And I think the reason for that is that, um, you know, really because their lives of science and faith were so much uh, something that they lived every day, it was very natural. There wasn't this need to have a kind of a discussion of how that worked, if, if you want to think of it that way. Um, one of those astronomers, um, uh, Gabriel Jonti, became my spiritual advisor during that time. Um, but, you know, for the others, I mean, they did their work, they lived out their, their lives of faith, and um, there wasn't a lot of need to talk about it. Uh, it was when I got to Cornell and um, began to um, not only talk with some people here, but also uh, having met uh, Stephen Barr uh, in 2015, I guess, it was 2014, um, and we began putting together the society, that's when the conversations really became intense. Uh -huh. And those might have been conversations not so much with Ithaca Cornell colleagues, but with colleagues literally uh, uh, around the country as the membership of the Society of Catholic Scientists grew. Yes, and people that I had interacted with scientifically who I had not realized were Catholic and who uh, ended up joining us in um, putting this society together that, you know, that was a, a very pleasant surprise as well. And um, Karin Oberg, for example, was an astronomer at Harvard. Uh, so it, it was a, I would call it a gradual um, pathway to discovery, a gradual pathway to discovery. And um, it was something that kind of arose um, very naturally and, and, you know, over the years and um, 
has been, I think, uh, very, very much um, a, uh, a joyful experience for me to be able to see this network grow. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the stereotype for many people would be that uh, uh, you, your, your pathway would also lead you to conversations with some colleagues that uh, could almost have become uh, hurdles uh, uh, to a growing uh, religiosity simply because uh, there might have been resistance among some scientists to either uh, talking about religion or even resistance to religion itself. But uh, how did you experience that mix? Right. So that's certainly there. Now, of course, as Catholics, we all know we're very good at the guilt thing. And I always felt this sense of guilt about this, that, you know, I had come to this decision late in my life after I had, you know, gotten tenure and been promoted to full professor, um, had a reputation in the field. I keep thinking about young people who want to be able to, you know, live out their faith more visibly but are near the beginning of their careers where they're being judged by more senior colleagues, where they yeah. will have to go through the tenure process or even get hired to be a faculty member. Yeah. It's not so easy, um, even though it's, of course, illegal to um, make decisions on employment based on one's religion. Okay. We all know very well that as human beings, we tend to have our biases. And so yeah. um, in many ways, I think I had it easy, but Nonetheless, for the first few years after I became Catholic, I did keep a lot of this to myself. And, um, you know, I went quietly to Mass. And um, it was not really until I was um, in, in um, this leave of absence in Rome that I really felt it was time to come out, and, um, if you will. And then at Cornell, um, I think the if you want to call it a coming out party at some level, it was giving a talk on Lemaitre, um, in uh-huh. front of, uh, uh, actually in the space sciences building. Um, my associate director here, who's also Catholic, said, well, we should have this talk in the space science building. It was part of a series that we were organizing here. And um, so uh, because it was in the space science building, a lot of my colleagues showed up who might not otherwise show up. And so... Mm-hmm. To me, that was a kind of a, a, a crossroad, I would say, uh, where a watershed moment where, um, you know, basically uh, I, I, I spoke in terms of my faith and uh, not only about Lemaitre, but also about myself. And really, that was, um, I mean, if you think about it, it was almost a decade after I'd become a Catholic. Uh-huh. Uh, I gave many talks. Uh, I mean, I'd given talks at other places. And, you know, really the first of those was the Dallas Ministry Conference where I talked in 2010. But those were all people from other institutions, you know, some higher education, some high school. To do this in your home institution, I think, was really uh, crossing uh, a threshold. And, and that was uh, very important for me. Wow. Yeah, yeah publicly owning it. Yes. Uh, but you're reminding me of the line from scripture where Jesus said a, a, a prophet is 
uh, respected everywhere except in his hometown. <laughs> yes, and that thought actually did, did come to me as to whether I would be hustled out of the building and brought to the cliff that um, Cornell does overlook the town and there's quite a drop there. Uh, right. But uh, that right. thankfully didn't happen, so. Yeah. Uh, We're not to that point yet. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. W without uh, hyperbolizing it uh, too much uh, for the sake of uh, uh, Hubert uh, there, I, I, I'm just basically uh, wondering how how uh, how severe that risk would have been in terms of uh, uh, actually causing uh, personal rifts with a number of colleagues. Um, it does that kind of thing happen? My 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 expectation is that it might happen a bit less in the fields of astronomy and planetary science than in perhaps some other scientific fields, simply because astronomy is all about the mysteries of the cosmos and and all of that. Was there at least that uh, hope that rifts could be avoided? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, astronomy. The study of astronomy actually carries with it a certain amount of humility. And many astronomers, of course, also entered the field with backgrounds in physics and quantum mechanics, uh, as a colleague once said to me, uh, was kind of physics come up in a century ago where it became clear that you know, physics was not going to be able to deterministically predict everything that would happen for all time. Quantum mechanics put an end to that. And I think that both the, 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 the grandeur of the cosmos and um, the, the puzzles that we have now with quantum physics really do impart a certain humility. Now, having said that, there are plenty of colleagues, of course, who are atheists and um, are proud of it. And you know, will um, make some very um, dogmatic statements about uh, the, the lack of existence of God and so forth. I mean, Stephen Hawking is a famous example of that. Mm. But I think you see more tolerance of this in astronomy. And I also believe that the, the greater age of astronomy is an intellectual endeavor and the fact that it um, really has come of age very slowly, including during a time when many um, religious people, um, all the way from Copernicus uh, to Galileo to Georges Lemaitre, um, made substantial contributions to astronomy. That also has, I think, given the field a certain cultural flavor that's more um, uh, flexible in terms of the question of science and faith, compared, for example, to biology and especially neurobiology. Those are fields where uh, people who are uh, who believe in God have a much tougher time uh, socially and uh, in terms of their interactions with their colleagues. No question about it. That's yeah. yeah. Mm. Biology and, and and was one of the uh, was one of the avenues of uh, opening up conversation. Uh, these particular talks about particular astronomers like Lemaitre. Uh, if, if, so long as you kept the conversations to uh, specific people and specific accomplishments in the field, was that the best portal into uh, conversations about faith and religion? It might be. A, if, it, if so, it could be a kind of uh, uh, helpful uh, 
tip uh, to uh, to younger scientists uh, who are wanting to integrate the two, uh, but uh, they fear the more general and more catechetical kinds of conversations. They keep it to the to the to the science. I I gave um, the convocation address a week ago Friday to. Um, uh, at Ave Maria University. And mm. One of the things that I said, which is a private Catholic university in, in uh, Florida, near Naples, mm. um, one of the things I did point out is that um, one should not hide one's faith, but one should be judicious about how one um, essentially talks about it. And, of course, one size doesn't fit all. Uh, and so, yes, I think one has to discern what is the right way to talk about one's faith? Obviously, you wouldn't go into um, a faculty meeting and try to evangelize everybody um, right. as if you were, you know, Paul or something like that. On the other hand, Paul himself adapted his messages to the crowd that he was in front of. And, you know, in particular, what impressed me <laughs> very much much is Paul's experience in Athens, as reported in Acts of uh, the Apostles, where, um, you know, he uh, finds himself in front of, um, uh, on the Areopagus, Mars Hill, if you will, uh, in front of a group of uh, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And his message is really tuned to um, what they might be able to understand, the, the, the concept of God as the creator of the universe, the concept of God as being uh, in and of itself. Um, and uh, these are things that you don't see in a lot of other places in the letters of Paul. It's very particular in mm. that speech that he gave to those philosophers and um, of course, when he got to the resurrection, um, that was too much for, for them. And, you know, that was the end of the speech. But he did convert some people that day. And then he went on to Corinth. And in Corinth, his, his message was much more, um, uh, I would say, direct and kind of um, not philosophical. It was, um, it was a, a message in the synagogue to the Jews that, that Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul himself really tuned his messages to his audience at some level. And uh, we get glimpses of that in both Acts and in the epistles. Um, and I think that that's a good lesson for, for the rest of us. Um, there's, a, there's a book. Um, it's one of uh, actually a series. It's the third of three books by some sociologists, I think, and statisticians. Um, I think Elaine Eklund is the first author. Uh, published by Oxford, and it's an analysis of how scientists and religious people regard um, religious belief and the science and faith controversy. Uh, and the third book is about how this is regarded in different parts of the world. And it's an interesting book, but I raise it because toward the end of it, they make the point that in in the U.S., which is actually where that conflict is is um, most evident. And most bitter, that they have found that where colleagues who are believers um, are willing to open up a little bit and expose their beliefs to their colleagues, to share in an appropriate way that their colleagues can, you know, don't feel uncomfortable, 
that that actually diminishes significantly the level of perceived uh, tension and incompatibility between science and faith, that you can win over your colleagues who are not religious um, Mm -hmm. by being open enough about your faith that they can, um, if you will, there's something they can consume there without feeling like they're being evangelized in some way. And of course it takes experience and, you know, sometimes you miss, but um, it's, I think um, a, uh, it's essentially the, the happy medium between being completely closed about these things uh, and being very evangelical about them. And so, yeah. you know, being judicious and how you approach your colleagues can really, really change this. And I've had that experience. I had that experience with, a well-known um, um, evolutionary biologist, actually, who huh. was, was very anti-Christian because he felt he had been beaten up by um, evangelicals on the subject of evolution. And we were together for a two-day um, Library of Congress uh, discussion called Astrobiology and the Sacred. And it was during those discussions that I really saw him soften up about this. Of course, you know, I didn't convert him to Christianity, but but he gained a, a, an understanding of the breadth of uh, the faith that went beyond the sort of narrow, um, aggressive window that he felt he had been subjected to. And so I, it's very important for, for scientists to do this. And I told that to the students at Ave Maria. I said, you know, be be judicious and thoughtful in how you do it. But you know, by all means, share your faith with your colleagues so that they understand what that faith really means and, and, and what it has done for you in your lives. That's, yeah. D- does that uh, difficulty that has to be overcome, does that uh, even extend to uh, fellow scientists who identify fairly strongly and immediately as atheists, uh, uh, is it almost uh, does does the term atheist almost become kind of a uh, an easy label for shutting down conversation? Uh, uh, might even that term mask a certain level of openness to religious discussions uh, if it's approached at the at the right point of conversation or uh, or uh, because i've i've often wondered in some people's minds what what does it mean to be an atheist is it considered to be a professional requirement by them is it very visceral because of something that happened in their own lives uh, and is uh, trying to decide the nature of their atheism a big part of of your very good strategy as it were uh, for finding common ground, uh, I just find that that term atheism has a lot of different shades of meaning itself. Right. I mean, it's a term that has um, a lot of emotional content to it, and you know, it can be used as a weapon, and it, and of course, people then shut down. So one really needs to be very careful about how one uses it. I think that most of my colleagues would not necessarily call themselves atheists. Those who are not believers might say, well, you know, I'm perhaps agnostic or maybe leaning toward not believing in God. But the, the term atheist, I think, is, is really um, a 
a very powerful word. And mm. It's used more by people, I think, who are really um, activist about their lack of belief. And you're right. There are a number of scientists who um, would argue that um, a requirement for the profession is to be an atheist. I mean, Lisa Randall has said, the, the cosmologist at Harvard, that she doesn't understand how one can believe in God and be a scientist at the same time. And mm. so that's a you know pretty strong statement to make. And of course, it, it influences young people because they're very impressionable. And people, young people who want to go into science see um, adult scientists as role models. And uh, we all well know that what scientists say, even when it goes beyond uh, their area of expertise, their particular field of work, uh, are believed more often than most other people in society, certainly more than politicians and, um, and maybe psychologists and so forth. It, it's, scientists have a huge amount of credibility in our society, and for that reason, a lot of um, what a scientist might say that is not necessarily well-informed is still accepted by um, by fans of science and others, and so you know it's very tricky. Um, it, it it really is very tricky. I think as a scientist, um, I have to say we have a responsibility to not go beyond our areas of expertise, or when we do, to make it clear that we're speaking as individuals, uh, as any individual might who does not necessarily have a particular expertise in that. So um, I've sort of wandered into a different topic, I realize. But, you know, bottom line is I, I don't like to use the word atheist when I'm talking to my colleagues. Um, I have been at a table, a dinner table, where there are people I know are ardent atheists and rather anti-religious. Mm -hmm. um, when the conversation wanders into uh, something, uh, you know, uh, that uh, might refer to something negative that maybe the Pope did or something else or some misconception, I will correct it. Um, okay. uh -huh. but, um, I will, um, you know, also be careful not to turn the dinner into um, a, uh, a whole discussion about religion and science because, um, you know, just because someone is an atheist does not mean they want to spend that whole time talking about that, for sure. Fair so, enough. There's time and a place for everything. And actually, um, you know, I've had many opportunities to talk. I mean, even at Cornell, I mentioned the, the talk I gave in the Space Science Building. That, in turn, led to us a talk in the Cornell Summer Lecture Series the following summer in front of over 200 people in one of the big lecture halls. and. You know, there were a lot of very, very good questions and, you know, people who were thinking carefully. One student came up to me and, and she said she didn't have any beliefs, but she was having trouble understanding this concept of, I was talking about Thomistic creation and the difference between a beginning uh, of, of something and the creation of things in the Thomistic sense. And, and so we had a really good conversation where we tried to wrestle with analogies that would resonate with her and, you know, would be close enough to, to what um, St. Thomas was trying to say. And those are really the, the opportunities to, to, I think, broaden people's minds. We have um, now on our campus, we're a chapter of the Thomistic Institute, uh, huh. based in Washington, D.C., thanks, in fact, to 
um, a graduate student um, over in applied physics who got this going and asked me to be the faculty advisor. And um, we, we've had at least two of our talks now have had um, almost or just over 100 people attending. And I know that most of those people are not Catholics. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's and, and they're thoughtful and the questions are thoughtful. And it's just an opportunity to take people out of the stereotypes that they've been subjected to about religion and faith that are all around us in the media, unfortunately, and, you know, expose them to the really thoughtful core ideas of, of our faith and faith in general. For a lot of these self-identified atheists, is it just uh, because of their naturally scientific thinking, uh, does their atheism stem from more a, a, a personal experience uh, that, that angered them and upset them? Or is it the sense that, uh, well, uh, religion is based on mythology and as a scientist, it's my duty not to deal in the realm of myth. Well, I think, you know, for different people, it's, it's one or the other or both of those. I mean, they're, they're both um, things that happen uh, very often in, uh, you know, when we're young. Religious education today is something that very few people really have. Uh, yeah, you know, even so if true. they are brought up in um, a Christian home or a Jewish home, they just may not get it. And so the, you know, what they understand to be their religious faith comes from a pretty tenuous uh, set of experiences, maybe in church or synagogue, maybe yeah. with their parents. And um, they don't get the depth of education that's required, I think, for people to understand the relationship between that faith and what they're going to learn as they take courses in science. And so they, they make the mistake of trying to confront um, stories, for example, that come from the Bible with what they're learning in science. And so, for example, I gave a talk a year or so ago at Knights of Columbus. Um, when the talk was over, a, a middle-aged woman came up to me, um, thanked me for the talk, said she... Um, her son had lost his faith because he came to her and said, you know, I'm taking geology now in high school, and none of this is um, uh, in, in Genesis uh, is, seems to be correct. I mean, he's trying to compare literally in Genesis what he was learning about geology. His mother didn't have an answer for him, and he lost his faith. And uh -huh. so, and I said, well, you know, St. Augustine went through that, too, and he yeah. wrote a book called On the Literal Meaning of Genesis and, you know, basically started the whole tradition of trying to understand the biblical texts in uh, their multiple meanings, their metaphorical meanings, their spiritual meanings. Georges Lemaitre, who was Catholic priest and uh, prelate, prelate of the papal household and president of the Pontifical Academy of Sciences, said outright that the Bible isn't a science book. And... Uh, it is um, there uh, for the salvation of humankind. It's not there to teach us about the history, the physical history of the universe, and that the people who were inspired to write it were not given supernatural information about um, you know, the age of the universe or other things that came to be discovered by science. And it was very clear that the Bible should not be read that way. But you know, how many people actually are... <laughs> 
have any experience with, with Augustine, with Aquinas, with Lemaitre, um, yeah. or with any of these others. And so people are just not equipped to understand the relationship between our human experiences uh, and our connection to God through our faith yeah. and then what we learn from science. Uh, and so it's very natural then that people lose their faith and become atheists. So yeah. I have to say, that, you know, when I say these things, I don't have a very strong sense of optimism about it because the answer to all of this really has to come from education at a young age. And um, it is just not in our society uh, no. the thing to have um, a real education in religious ideas and where they come from. If you enjoyed this episode or one of our previous episodes, please leave us a review on iTunes iTunes is the biggest distributor of podcasts, and having reviews there will help us reach a wider audience. We would also love it if you posted your review on other services like Google Play and Stitcher as well.